that's perfect worship for what we're talking through here on the Lord's Prayer for the next, really, eight weeks. So we are living the Lord's Prayer as best we can here for the next few weeks. Next week, Adam Lips will be up spending two weeks. Adam Lips, the theologian, will be talking about hallowed be thy name. So we start off this Sunday with our Father. So I got a photo here for you. Yeah, you know this? I'll bring a smile to your face. There it is, the Royals World Series Parade Celebration 2015. Good grief, that's a long time ago. Not as long as 30 years between 1985 and 2015, yeah? Let's hear a little amen out of that. So you recall this magical moment, right? That day of days when nearly, supposedly, a million people, something close to that, got together for one single purpose, and that was to celebrate the World Series win by the Kansas City Royals. Long drought between World Series. After that long 30 years of disappointment and losing and losing and blah, 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 and changes in ownership and all that sort of thing, you know, remember the committee that used to own the team? Um, And that effect of winning the World Series brought the entire city together as one people, one people on that day, We were one, you know, Uh, black, brown, rich, poor, conservative, liberal, didn't matter. We were all one on that day. Purportedly, there was no crime during the parade. There was no riots. There was no looting as opposed to whoever won it the next year. And supposedly there was a bunch of riot and looting, all that sort of thing, you know. But not in Kansas City, man. We were perfect people. Our, Our one people, we got together for one purpose, and that was joy. We were one. So I show you this glorious moment in Kansas City's history to remind us all that it is possible, it is possible for a people of 335 million to actually agree on one thing and be one people. Let's not lose that hope and that joy. It is possible, given the right situation, that we could all be in agreement about something. In addition, I show you this photo to demonstrate what happens during liturgical prayer. You're like, what? What happens during gathered liturgical prayer? Like when we pray the Lord's Prayer together here at Lakeland. And the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. So there are a few things here to show what's going on in this prayer. And there are two things that are just flat out incredible. And they take up the two first words, Our Father. And I want to break both of them down. So let's take a look at this thing that we just, we, we do this every Sunday. We can take it for granted. It rolls off the tongue. It can get real wah, 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 wah. And I'm telling you, there's more going on here. And so let's just dig into it. You can't ignore it. Our and Father. So we begin then with Father. According to the biblical scholar, Wesley Hill, he tells us that the concept of Father in the Old Testament was really just simply a metaphor for God demonstrating God's relationship with his chosen people. It was more of an ideal than actually something that they everyone, everyone really believed. 700 years later from the prophets, when Israel's off in exile by then and everything had gone bad, 700 years later, Jesus uses the term in the Gospels, and it's personal for Jesus. No longer a metaphor. It's personal. Jesus... <coughs> God is Jesus' father, and God is our father. And in the Old Testament, father's only used about 
15 times. Whereas in the New Testament Gospels, Jesus uses it uh, at least 65 times. If not, if you can throw John, the Gospel of John in there, like 170 times. Jesus is compared to 15 in the Old Testament. So throughout the Old Testament, Father, the word Father, for the few times it's used, it's sort of a tentative idea. It's not, it's not fully baked. It's not even really believed. While the Hebrews understood God was not like an earthly father, there's a strong metaphor with God as Father is the one who just does this one thing, and that's redeems his people. Because in their culture, the Father is the one who can buy back the son or the slave, I mean the son or the daughter, from uh, slavery. Or from if they get in trouble, you can return to your father's home. So that's their understanding of father is the one who basically uh, can get you out of jail free, so to speak. So there's this notion then that the father is your home base. And that's the way they kind of think about God. When Moses speaks to hard-hearted Pharaoh... He uses this idea. So Moses says, thus says the Lord, Exodus chapter 4, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So here's a father image. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me. And then Isaiah writes, Moses is about, you know, 1600 BC and Isaiah is writing probably around uh, 800. You, O God, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name, says Isaiah. You're our father. Okay, there it is again. Then the father is the one who pays off the child's debt. One belongs to the father's household. It's still, though, more of a metaphor than really relational. It's more transactional because here you have this word redemption, somebody who's paying off a debt, and it's nice to have a father, you know, benefactor, if you want to call it that. There's still some hesitation to it and not really totally believed as an intimate the way we would understand it with Jesus. So 600 years before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah shows God lamenting over his disobedient, exiled children. Here's God pleading with the children of Israel. I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. I thought we were family. I thought we were good. But I guess you're not really there. You just keep me transactional. Yeah, but they did turn from following, and it was a bad family dynamic, if there was any family dynamic at all. This is a problem child right here, Israel. Not exactly a tight family unit going on here. God's not their dad. And I don't think the sons and daughters of Israel really like their authoritarian parent because that's what they'd turn him into if he was a parent at all. The Hebrews wanted a credit card with no spending limit, and no accountability. And that's what they got, and it led them off into exile. They lost their homeland. They were exiled. And, you know, the homeland, by the way, you know, for 700 years is just overrun with whoever comes up with the biggest army, you know, that year, and there's who's, that's who's in charge. So when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, which in Luke's gospel, the way John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, we get the sense that Jesus says something very different than his cousin John, when Jesus, uh, the way John was teaching. So for Jesus then to teach the disciples how to pray is God is Father, God is our Father, God is relational, God is intimate. Jesus goes on to state, 
The Father and I are one in John chapter 10, verse 30. The Father and I are one. Much to the outrage of the uptight legalistic Pharisees that he's arguing with at the very moment. The Father and I are one. Pharisees can't stomach this idea. One, you're calling him Father, and then you're saying you're one? You can see why they end up crucifying him. See, for the Pharisees, they just boiled God down to who's in and who's out, who's obedient, who's disobedient. It was just a big uh, legalism. It was just a big sort of an accounting deal. Of course, the Pharisees thought they were in and everybody else was out. And then they just went around judging everybody. I mean, Jesus' only real enemy throughout the Gospels are the Pharisees because they had destroyed this idea, the possibility that God is Father. They turned it into religion instead of a relationship. Well, here's the second flat-out incredible concept in the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, and it's our, our, our Father. Somehow, when the Royals won the World Series, it wasn't just the Royals players that happened to be in the dugout, you know, for seven games, or it wasn't even the front office, or even the owners. <clears throat> for us, Kansas Cityans, the championship was our championship. Even though none of us ever swung a bat, we knew that, we all won. And the Royals' win was our win. And so together, when we pray the prayer Jesus gave us, it makes our, our belonging real. It makes us conceive of ourselves as one people, as one with Jesus, as one with God. We become one. God is our God. God is our Father. The relationship is there. So, of course, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it requires each of us to submit not only to God, but when we pray the prayer, we have to submit to each other. We pray it as one. It's why we say it out loud. This is what makes it liturgical. It makes it a liturgy. It means it's the work of the people. It is what we do. And, it, in, and in the, I'm going to use the fancy word performative, in a performative moment, it performs the function of the words by binding us together into one people. It makes it a reality. In the speaking of the word, God becomes Father. And not only that, God becomes our Father. And that's why we say it every week along with the rest of the liturgy, including the rest of the Lord's table, which we'll do here in just a moment. So that means Jesus' win is our win. It means his cross is our cross. It means his resurrection is our resurrection. His mission to change the world is our mission. And it leads us to that head-scratching moment when we have to consider, wait, wait, is there such a thing as a private Christian? Is there such a thing as a private Christian? You're like, wait, man. I got Jesus as my personal savior. Like, personal, yes. Private, no. Personal, yes, not private. You don't have a private Jesus. You have a personal relationship with Jesus. There's no such thing as private Jesus. Our Father. Personal, 
because that father is intimate. Be careful because you may slip into some sort of modern notion of privatization in our romantic, existential, blah, 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 philosophical world where we all think we're the center of the universe. The scriptures sit around and say, like, you are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And we revolve around that God. Be careful of imposing 21st century thought onto scripture. Well, that, that then says, so if this is personal, then the rest of the Lord's Prayer then turns into seven different petitions. And these are our petitions. And those petitions are straight ahead. The Lord's Prayer says this, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Save us from trial. Deliver us from evil. We speak those not just for ourselves. We speak them for our, our whole church. We speak them for all of Christianity. We speak it for the entire world. It's a petition. It's a way of bringing it before God as a fragrant aroma. It's an offering before the throne of God. These are our petitions. They are not private petitions. We must consider these petitions not even ours alone, but they are for the entire world. We are interceding on behalf of over 6 billion people, including atheists, agnostics, Jews, Muslims, Ukrainians, Russians, and even Baptists. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, yes, indeed, we have differences, just like all those people gathered at the World Series parade. We have differences about wearing or not wearing masks, and we're all kind of blah, blah, blah about that now. We have differences about government and authority, and then we have differences about what is identity and about what is art and what is an economic strategy and tariffs and taxations and on and on. We've got all sorts of opinions in the room. Just extrapolate that out to 335 million people, and we got opinions. But on one thing, we Christians are not divided. We are one under Jesus, and our Father is our Father. How's this work? I don't know, but I read a story last year in a philosopher from uh, James K.A. Smith. And I told it to you last year. And I love the story so much, I'm going to tell it to you again. And it's sort of one of these ones where you leave the end of the story and you're like, uh, I understand. I, don't, I can't dissect it. So here's the story. Okay. Smith recounts a story about a poet. New York City poet, Mary Carr, she's Catholic, and she has a non-believing friend, Lena Durham, okay? So this is a story about Mary and Lena. And Lena asked Mary, what's it like to be a person who thinks and cares about Jesus and has religion in your life, but hangs out with New York literati, okay? What's that like to be hanging out with all the cool people in New York City, and yet, you know, you're a Christian, right? Two don't seem to really match. And this is what Mary says. I had this amazing thing happen to me at Mass a couple of weeks ago. A guy came up to me, and I had my iPad, you know, and there's this thing where you can follow the readings, the Christian readings during the Mass, you know, she says. And I'm looking at that. I'm not reading my email. I, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the readings, she says. And this guy comes up from the back of the church dressed up in a coat and tie like uncle assistant principal or something. And he says, 
could you turn that thing off? I said, excuse me? And he says, yeah, the light's bothering me. And I thought for a moment, I'm trying to be a Christian. And I said, okay, yeah, sure, I can turn it off. Yeah, no problem. And then I sat there and wished him dead for the rest of the mass. <laughs> and then when I walked out of church, he came up to me and he said, I'm sorry. I, I know there's something wrong with me. <laughs> End of story. And you're like, uh... There's something about church that works like this, you guys. You walk in thinking, out there in the parking lot, you can walk into the doors and you think, like, man, that's not my people. Those aren't my people. And then we'll get done here in a few minutes, and you walk out of here saying, like, yeah, those are my people. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, except that we are one people because we say the Our Father together, because we drink great coffee together and eat donut holes. Uh, and, and we say these words together that we're just about to say. You walk in here thinking, ah, that's not my people. And you walk out here thinking, like, yeah, those are my people. And that's why we gather. And that's why we come. The Lord's Prayer takes us from, those aren't my people, to, yeah, those are my people. Our Father, our prayer, our oneness. So as we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we pray it with a confidence. We, we pray it uh, as a celebration of the power that it brings us, not a power of domination, but a power of oneness, a power of being together. And we, we brings us together under the Holy Spirit, uh, asking the Father, our Father, for what we need for not only just ourselves and for our church community, but for the all over six billion people on the planet. We are interceding when we ask for daily bread. Do you not think when you read the paper and you're reading about Ukraine right now, and you think, like, where are they getting the food? Or when you read about Syria and people are living in tents, you're like, who's feeding them? And when you read about disasters and so forth around even our own country, a tornado or whatever, you think, like, who's taking care of them? And then we pray, give us our daily bread. You're like, well, I got plenty of bread. So you're praying it for somebody else. All this to say, when we say our Father, it's not just our prayer. It's everyone's prayer. And we pray it on behalf of them, even if they don't believe us. Because we don't care. We pray for them anyway. So let's go there. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took... Uh, servers, you want to come forward. Um, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks... He said this, he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here it comes, everybody stand up, because it's time to do the Our Father. Join me, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, everyone, we proclaim this mystery of faith. That Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. 
Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God, each day may Jesus Christ be as real to us as his food and drink. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.